Welcome to Speaking of Partnership, the show that brings you the personal partnership stories of experts from all walks of life so you can turn their stumbling blocks into stepping stones to healthy, long-lasting partnerships. I'm your host, Ken Bechtel. You know that the partnership game is not easy, but it's so worth it. If you're struggling with attracting or maintaining partnerships, go to speakingofpartnership.com right now, click on the big red button, and attend a free webinar on the secret to starting your ideal partnership today. Now, let me introduce you to today's guest. I am super excited to bring my dear friend, Adam Lamb, to the show today. Adam, welcome to the show. Ken, thanks so much for having me. Uh, ever since we talked about this, I've been just so excited to, uh, uh, to be able to get on and, and chat with you. Yeah, absolutely. I have too. And just to kind of give you guys an idea of how Adam and I met, we were both at a men's retreat and connected there. And then I learned all these amazing things about Adam. And so let me just tell you a few of them. <laughs> <laughs> so Adam is a speaker. He's an author. He's a relationship guide for men, men of all ages. And he actually assists them in reconnecting to their authentic masculine power, both through individual and group coaching programs, as well as immersive retreats. He also is the host of a weekly live video show, The Morning Manifesto, that's on YouTube and it's on Facebook. He also has a monthly podcast, Manifesto Radio, that's on iTunes, it's on Google Play and Stitcher. On top of all that, he's a published author. And some of his titles are Getting Comfortable with Being Uncomfortable, Profanity and Its Proper Use, and An Initiated Man, Finally. His newest work, Circle Jerk, Lessons of Manhood My Father Never Taught Me, is due out next summer in 2019. And I want to share with something I saw on his site, which is Adam's Vision. It reads as follows. I stand for a world where men can incorporate all the best attributes of masculinity and femininity in harmony in order to discover the best version of themselves. I love that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a mouth for sure, but uh, there's this also aspect of men being able to discover their own version of what it looks like to be, you know, a harmonized man. I, I, think we've all kind of read lots of stuff and um, there's no end of people posting and trying to tell us what kind of man we should be. Um, and I, I think it's a much, much more powerful experience to discover for ourselves what kind of man we want to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Adam, do us a favor because I happen to know that you're also a trained chef and I'm wondering, yeah. how did you get to do this work with men that you're doing now? Well, um, I started recognizing something in in the really talented uh, young people, both men and women, that were coming up through the industry. I've been cooking for about 35 years. I started when I was 15, uh, washing dishes and tried to do other things, but the industry kept calling me back. It's like a bad episode of The Sopranos, you know. I tried <laughs> to get out, but they just kept pulling me back. Yeah. Um, and so these young people would be highly creative. Um, incredibly talented, yet they displayed what I can only call uninitiated behavior, uh, drugs, alcohol, chasing women or chasing men. Uh, and the reason I was able to recognize it as quickly uh, was because that's exactly the way I had been in my youth. I had worked under the delusion that I 
I needed to be an A-tier chef by the time I was 35. Um, and in my zest for that goal, um, all my decisions were based out of that. And unfortunately, a lot of people paid the price for that those decisions, namely my my wife and my children, because I wasn't around very much. And, you know, there's the pressure cooker of the kitchen. And then after you get off work, how do you how do you relieve that stress? Well, the only tools we had were liquor and drugs and uh, weren't far enough along to be able to understand that there's other ways of dealing with that stress. So as I kind of bridged my crisis moment, I wanted to reach out to these folks and tell them that there's another way of doing it. And the way that I was doing it was modeling uh, mature professional behavior, but talking to them in a way that kind of uh, would resonate to where they were at. Um, so constantly I was trying to be where they were at and trying to bridge them up or at least show them the opportunity to where it might go. I've drug enough horses to water and gotten kicked in the chest that, you know, at this point I say, okay, there's the well over there and this is what you got to do to get over there. Um, and chefs, so I specifically started focusing on chefs as far as coaching and mentoring uh, around how to have a fulfilling life and aha, it's got nothing to do with cooking. <laughs> More about self-nurture and self-care and um, owning all the, the, the bad crap in you and also all the good stuff in you, that part that we talked about earlier about harmonized uh, masculinity. And um, chefs are a pretty rough and tumble group of people. They live under inordinate amounts of stress. Uh, their time management is also always something that's very, very critical to them. They always feel like there's way too many things to do and not enough time. So this aspect of <clears throat> creating webinars to as an educational service to them is something that they, you know, didn't quite understand. I think maybe I was a little bit before the curve. Um, you know, they either didn't have enough time in order to consume the content or they thought that A, it would never happen to them or B, they've already got it clocked. I spoke at quite a few American Culinary Federation conferences, and um, as these events were leading out, there was always a few guys thanking me so very much for the conversation that it was time, and uh, why don't more people talk about this? Um, but no one was really following up on getting that coaching. They were all very, very up and enthusiastic about it, but when it came time to actually doing the work, they were there were other things that were more important or more immediately important to them. So that's why I kind of pivoted to kind of broaden my lens to include men of any particular career, because as I've seen, you know, the lessons I learned in the kitchen um, are appropriate no matter what business you're in. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, your comment about, you know, the pressure cooker, the stress that, that you're under in, in the kitchen, pretty much everybody feels that way, whatever their environment is. Absolutely. Right? So it's like it may be a different version. It may be a different quantity, but it's still how do we manage that, like you said, in a healthy way, as opposed to going to vices that are really just ways to check out and avoid it. Correct. So, yeah, absolutely. I love that. And I want to ask you something, because, as you know, we focus on partnership here. And one of the things I always ask our guests is, what do you use? as I call it a guiding principle, some people call it a quote or mantra or a touchstone, but what's that thing that you go back to whenever you realize you're kind of off in the weeds and you're not really on partnership course right now and you want to get back on track? What's that thing that brings you back home? Uh, well, there's a couple things. Funny enough, and thank you for mentioning the fact that uh, 
that we met at that men's workshop. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there have been a couple things that, that I've used in the past, but kind of my lodestone going forward um, is uh, an exercise that we did during the course of the weekend, which I think you and I actually engaged in where we first interacted, which was, you know, tell me one thing that, that, uh, that you stand for. Yeah. So having been asked that question time and time and time again that, around that weekend, um, I realized that I stand for community. So I ask myself that question every morning after I get up, after I've done my meditation, right before I walk out the door and ask myself, okay, tell me one thing you stand for, Adam. And most often it's, uh, you know, something around community, something around, you know, I stand for uh, more connection and less separation, something like that. And so every single act I take during that day, firstly, it allows me to kind of concretely focus in on not only what I stand for, but how I'm going to act during the day. And I can always continue to check in throughout the day. And to be honest, I don't think I've ever had that much mindfulness um, in the course of a day, because certainly, as you so well pointed out, there's plenty of stuff to have us check out. Um, And yet I continue to come back to uh, that I really want to feel someone's heart. And I really want to know what's going on with them. Um, And if I'm going to if I'm going to ask for someone else to be transparent and vulnerable, then I have to do that first. Absolutely. Yeah. So. I, I love that. That's kind of your anchor, right? Is what do you stand for? Yep. And I totally agree with you. I mean, it was, it was obviously a very powerful experience at the event where we're standing there and it's like, and I, I heard lots of guys say, I never really thought about that. So, <laughs> yeah. Right. Because, yeah. I mean, think about it. When, when do we ever get asked that question? Is it part of school? No. Is right. it in most families? No. It's just getting by day to day. What's next? Yep. Uh, can I can I tell a quick little story about yeah, that? Please. Um, I, I have a dear friend in Asheville, North Carolina, who's a trained shaman and his mentor, the shaman that taught him was from Central Africa. Uh, and he told him a story once I found so profound that I, I retell it often. Um, but in this particular tribe in Africa, they have a ceremony by which uh, the pregnant woman at some stage in her pregnancy is invited into the nightly circle and she's basically put into a trance. And then the shaman gets down on his hands and knees and speaks to the baby in utero. And he has two questions for that baby in utero. First is, what is your name? And second is, what medicine are you bringing forth? Because in their cosmology, in their view of the world, the only reason that any would be born into this world is because you're bringing some type of magic from the in-between place into this plane of existence because it's being asked for. Now, I think that's incredibly profound because what if each of us knew as early as, as, you know, six, seven, eight years old that there's a reason that we're here and it's to bring our gifts forward and to shine our light no matter where we're at under any circumstance. Uh, and I just look at my own life and think, by if I had been connected to that, um, there's a lot of choices I probably would have made differently. I love that. That is the coolest thing. And, yeah. you know, it just reminded me, I remember growing up and I was always envious of the kids that seemed to know what they were there for. <laughs> Even though they might have been like the band geek. Yeah. But, but they were dialed. There was a kid, I'll never forget this. So. We started band in my school in seventh grade, I believe. And I ended up playing the trumpet. And this guy in my class, Todd, comes into class the first day, and he's got this leather hand thing on there, and he's like got all these extra gizmos. 
And I realized Todd, day one, knew he was supposed to be a musician. <laughs> yeah, that's And awesome. he literally was already taking private lessons and all this stuff. And, of course, Todd was the best musician in the class. And he has gone on to win all kinds of awards. He's a music teacher and a band instructor and does all this incredible stuff. And he's a, a composer. Very well received. And as much as it was like, you know, that's all Todd cared about. He was totally into the music scene. It was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting there going, wow, that would be so cool to like know what that is. I mean, there was no question what Todd was doing after high school. He was going to go study music. He was going to come back and live a life of music. And it made me think back to when we were in like fourth or fifth grade. Todd was in my class. And I remember we were doing um, multiplication tables. And you know how they'd have you like time who could do it fastest? Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm outing myself here. Um, <laughs> Todd and I were always the fastest at it. And uh -huh. I actually knew he was better at math than I was. And I also recognized that they gave us the exact same test every day. So I memorized the answers to the first two columns. So I didn't even have to look at the question. I just wrote seven, four, five, and I just knew the answers. And then halfway through, I'd start calculating. And because of that, I could beat him. But if I had to do the math, he'd be faster. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. It was, it was my way, male competition, right? Mm -hmm. My way of, of winning that. But then I remember it didn't really matter because Todd was going to be a musician no matter if he knew math or not. Well, all music is mathematical as I well. Know. So he, <laughs> that's probably yeah. where he was trying to figure. He's probably counting it and he's probably doing <laughs> multiplications in like quarter notes and 16th notes and 32 notes. And uh, just as an aside, I have to tell you that uh, I started playing cornet in band and then switched to baritone. <laughs> oh, nice. Very nice. Another reason we're, we're kindred spirits. Exactly. We're just band geeks at heart, man. Yeah, well, don't tell anyone. Oh, wait, we just did. Uh, <laughs> so, Adam, I want to ask you this about... Um, about partnership in regards to like one of the things that our, our listeners love is our, our, our guests are incredibly generous in sharing their own personal stories. And what I'd love for you to share with us is, is a time in your life when you kind of, well, you kind of tripped up, right? You kind of screwed up in your partnership yeah. and just tell us, you know, what were you doing? What'd you trip on? And ultimately, what did you learn from this experience that helped you move forward? Oh boy. Um, sure. So as a, <laughs> It was the very first executive chef job I a chef job I ever got in Arlington Park, uh, Illinois, in uh, on the Arlington Park racetrack. The organization I worked with downtown Chicago opened up a brand new facility there, and um, decided to have me as their executive chef. So I was kind of like, kind of feeling my oats to begin with um, that this opportunity had come to me, and there was uh, a guy who was the food and beverage director who had been all around Chicago. And he was kind of a crusty old guy. And he looked at me as a young punk. Um, but we ended up entering in a beautiful relationship, so much so that he trusted me to mentor his son, who was, you know, in his in his later teens, uh, and who had plans to become a chef. And so I, I think the guy put me up on a pedestal a little bit. And there was something going on where I had to get down to the south side of Chicago to pick up this 65 Nova that this guy had in his garage. Um, and I was under a time crunch. And I asked uh, JJ, because his name is uh, Jonathan Jameson. I said, JJ, can I borrow your Jeep? 
to go down there and pick this vehicle up. And he said, sure. And he tossed me his keys as he would to anybody that he looked up to. And uh, I got it about a block out of the parking lot and it broke down. And I was under such a rush to go get this car that I was more focused on the car than I was JJ. And I came back and tossed him his keys. I'm saying, sorry, bro, the car's broke down, got to run. And kind of left him with that. And what I didn't take into account, because for me, it's like, okay, this didn't work out. Just continuing to solve the most fluid yes of the problem and continue to like get to my end result, which is getting that car all the way back to the north side of Chicago. I didn't realize that um, that I had left JJ with a bunch of crap and he was completely heartbroken that I would basically break his car and just leave him with it because of something else that I thought was more important than him. And when I found out that that's the way he felt, I immediately felt like shit, of course. Um, but more importantly, I was like looking into my heart and looking into the, the truth of the situation. And I realized that there were two things that were going on. Number one is this whole aspect of <clears throat> allowing anyone to put you up on a pedestal. Um, you know, very often there are spiritual teachers or gurus who love to be up on the on the pedestal. And um, from my experience and from others that I've seen play out since then, I realized that the that you know it doesn't look like it's very tall, but you you can break your neck falling from that space. Yeah. And no, and number two, realizing that. Um, looking back that the car was just a thing and here I made a, a choice for a thing over this person who was looking up to me to mentor him and not only him his father and uh, that was a relationship that I cherish as well and I shit the bed on both of them and it took a lot of time and effort to repair that relationship because they were both important to me in my youth you know I, I thought that they were being completely uh, completely unreasonable um, and, you know, I remember kind of tuck tail and saying, yeah, okay, I'm really sorry. But it wasn't too long after that, that I saw the depth of, um, I, I wouldn't call it a betrayal, but they certainly looked at it as a betrayal. And I realized that, um, you know, raising children now that, you know, you can do the best job that you can, but everybody's going to have a story. So it's not surprising that someone would look back and say, well, Adam's, you know, a crappy person because he did this to me or he did that to me. Oh, look, he's a, he's an author. So what? It doesn't change the fact that he was a shit to me back when. And I'll be the first one to admit that um, there were plenty of times in my life where um, I sacrificed relationships for things, you know, whether it was an idea of a career or a vehicle or, you know, the next beer or bag of cocaine or all that kind of crap. I had my priorities completely wrong. And, um, and I, I can say that without any, I used to be able to love kicking my own ass about that and saying, oh, I'm a really bad person. I'm irredeemable. I might as well just, you know, there's no point in changing because, because, because I'm basically an asshole. Um, but I realized that e even that is a red herring because that's not the truth of who I am. There may be a small part of me that's an asshole. Yes. <laughs> Um, and can be under certain situations, you know, it's the whole idea of the of the dark knight versus the white knight or the dark king versus the collapsed king. You know, we get to, I've come to the point where I get to own all of myself, both the good and the bad, in neutrality, in this moment, in a body, on a planet, and realize that it's only, only by doing that can I be brought into any type of wholeness. And so I'd much rather just acknowledge those times um, 
and clean up after them and own them in neutrality without using them as a, you know, as an opportunity for self-flagellation. Wow. <laughs> no, that's so cool. And I, I, I love what you said about, you know, you used to be beating yourself up about it, right? Yep. And it's one of the things I, I, I often say is, you know, beating yourself up doesn't get you any closer to joy. So you can skip that step. Yep. Once Absolutely. we realize we're off our path, well, beating yourself up doesn't get you back on the path. Well, it's just an, it's just another distraction to exactly. keep you from doing the work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which I think exactly. is fascinating. Yeah. So not only not only do you do something wrong, but then that part of your ego, by the way, my ego's name is Sluggo. Um, but then Sluggo, <laughs> Sluggo gets to hold me in judgment. And then the me who I really am gets to look at that and hold myself in judgment about being held in judgment. And it like it never ends. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Hence, hence the title of my upcoming book, Circle Jerk, because that's, in fact, not only what we do to ourselves, but also what we do to other men. Mm-hmm. You know, we very often are transparent and vulnerable with other men. And so we've always got this game going on about either trying to one up them or to never show our cards to them. Um, and not knowing that, as we experienced uh, last weekend or the weekend before, that it's only by bearing our hearts to one another that we can instantly fall in love with one another and see what wonderful human beings we all are. Yeah, and it, it, I'm always fascinated when I attend an event like that. And what what fascinates me is the amount of love that shows up in the room. Without a doubt. And I, I get that one could be very, very, very uncomfortable by that. You know, if that's not a situation that you're used to, and if your buddy just said, hey, listen, bro, come to this thing, it's going to be cool, whatever, and you get in there, and all of a sudden, there are these guys bearing their souls. I remember the one exercise that we did around those things that write down five things that you that you wanted, really wanted as a child, but didn't get enough of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, Satyan Raja and uh, Adam Galad turned it around and said, well, I, we'd invite you to consider that those are actually the gifts that you get to give. And then everybody's running around the room, you know, guys grabbing you by the shoulders, telling you, no, you are enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how are you supposed to walk away from that without like feeling like it really got you deep? I, I don't know. I think you'd have to you'd have to be really closed down and beat up by life really badly and not to like eventually concede to that much love. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So. I want to ask you something because I, I mean, obviously you, you work with men a lot. You, you see a lot of this experience because one of the things that, you know, like you were talking about your own experience of kind of being off the path and being distracted by all these different supposed targets that you were aiming at. Yep. Why do you think so many men are so far off the path? Um, I mean, I can only use my experience in this, but I, I have a sneaking suspicion that my experience, that other listeners may find some similarities in that. Um, I grew up, uh, with, uh, kind of a dominant narcissistic mother and a father who, although incredibly talented, uh, was kind of shy. My mother was Cuban, so she was very outgoing. You know, I got a lot of mixed signals growing up, uh, insofar as what being a man was like. My father was always trying to do the right thing um, in almost everything and ended up dying at 61, basically, I think, because he just had a grand mal seizure. So in my mind, 
that says to me that you know he finally got to a point in his life where he said, okay, that's enough. I'm I'm ready. I'm ready to check out. Um, which is a, which is a damn shame because um, his grandkids would have loved his presence in their lives right now. But um, we get a lot of mixed signals through uh, through through so now social media, television, uh, constantly bombarded. I mean, I grew up before the internet and before cell phones, and I can't imagine what it must be like to be a 13 or 14 year old person with this constant bombardment of messaging that you're not good enough and that uh or that you have to be a certain way gladly i am looking around at a lot of these youngsters who are coming up who are clearly indigo uh children who don't care what anybody else says or thinks and they're shining their light right where they're at even if they're you know 11 year old yogi uh instructor so that's really cool and maybe just maybe we're the dinosaurs um <laughs> of, of this particular type of thinking um, because once you're kind of bombarded with those messages and then there's the locker room moments where you're kind of indoctrinated into this infantile sense of masculinity where it's, you know, talking about girls and snapping each other with towels and, and, you know, we're very often learning those rules of masculinity from guys the same age as us. Like who the hell tell them that they knew any more than we did? <laughs> mm -hmm. So you get this kind of twisted sense of, of masculinity and it's been about you know since the industrial revolution where it kind of signaled the end of a ritualized rite of passage i mean it used to be that the that as a son you worked next to your father in the fields or in the shop or whatever and during the collectivization of the of labor during the industrial revolution now dad's away from the house for 8 10 12 14 hours and you barely see him and he comes home grumpy and he's yelling at you to keep quiet because he wants to get some get some quiet time and that's a very very difficult message as well prior to that you know when you were 14 years old someone showed up at your door and took you away for a weekend because you were going to be with initiated initiated elders and they were going to kind of issue you forth into the world of men whether that meant you know going through some painful or slightly painful ritual or giving you a new name or whatever that is thankfully there are still places in indigenous cultures that still honor that tradition but I think for Western men, there's a certain thing missing in that we, I mean, uh, just under the surface of everything, I feel this kind of sorrow and, and like a generalized ache in the heart of the masculine collective is like, we miss our fathers. You know, we miss our fathers, uh, even if our fathers were present. We miss, you know, having initiated elders around us. We miss having to go through that process. Now we have kind of faux uh, initiation, whether on a wrestling team like I went through in high school or the military, but it's still not the same thing. And um, and it's a shame. So uh, whatever the reason is, I mean, we could go on and on trying to, trying to discuss what the reason for it being. Uh, but I know what, what gave me a lot of hope was seeing, you know, you, me and 47 or 48 other guys in a room who didn't care why. They were just there to do their work. And I know that that opportunity exists for every man that, that's alive today. And when I was going through my dark night of the soul, I never ever once thought of going to a men's weekend or going on the internet or looking for Mankind Project or Wellman. I mean, there's so many great organizations out there for any man who's looking to start his path. There's just, there's an abundance of them out there. And it really is a great time to to be a man looking for his own enlightenment because there's lots and lots of ways to do it.
And, you know, I applaud anybody who's willing to go on that path. Because as you said, it's a lot easier just to kind of, okay, I'm just going to survive my life. And I don't know about you, Ken, but I think, you know, I think you and I come cut from the same cloth. Like, we don't want to just survive. We want to thrive. And we want to be in connection with other men who are also thriving. Because that's the only way that, you know, this whole mess is ever going to get healed is by men actually owning their harmonized version of masculinity so that they can stand with the divine feminine and at some point us throw away those identities as well and just be the cosmic three-year-olds that who you know came here to dance and play with one another but until that time it's a struggle man no i i totally agree with you and yes i i am definitely on the same page in regards to thriving not surviving um and you know one of the things that I, I want to make sure we touch on is like we talk about the weekend that you and I met at and, and different opportunities for, for men. And I hear this from women all the time because I work with women is, well, how come men aren't doing more work on themselves? <laughs> yeah, I know. I wrote this blog article about I saw this this very, very pretty flight attendant and she was angry the whole flight. And I sat there and I thought about it. And I, I needed to write in order to kind of figure out what was ruminating in the back of my mind. But I realized that she felt like it was dangerous to be here, or so I imagined. So I wrote this blog post about, you know, looking back at my life and seeing the opportunities that I had to take responsibility for not treating women with respect in whatever manner that might have been. And when I showed it to my wife, she read it and she was very kind. But she said, yeah, I don't think anyone wants just you know, gives a crap whether or not you're sorry or not. What they want to know is what, you know, what work are you doing? Like, what are you doing to change it? Like, are you doing your own work? And so that kind of spurred me to write another piece called A Call to Action for the Harmonized Man, which is like, all of us know that there's work that needs to be done. Sometimes we just don't know what it is. But if you know that there's, if you know you're unhappy, if you know that you're just kind of plugging along, waiting for life to end, you know, either you're living or you're dying, brother. So, I mean, if you want to take the slow road, that's cool, too. I get that. Sometimes it's very, very difficult to make that pivot. But I also know that that pivot can be made in the blink of an eye. And that road back is can be amazing one. But there's work involved. And let's not be honest or let's not kid anybody in the audience. You know, personal transformation is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> it's not. And I think the other thing that's important to recognize is that how men go about it looks different than how women go about it. I completely agree. And so a lot of times women are like, well, why aren't there more guys at this event? It's because it's not an event for guys. Yep. We don't yep. congregate in the same way. We don't find strength in those same things. We do it differently. And you would never want to do the stuff that we want to do. Yep. I mean, And some of them are like, yes, I could do it. It's like, I didn't say you couldn't do it. Right. I said that you don't want to. You're not naturally gravitating towards it. Just like we're not naturally gravitating towards a group of 700 women and then all staying connected on Facebook. That's not the masculine demeanor. We do more things in isolation. And so you don't see it, and then you think we're not doing anything. Right, and let's let's be honest. I mean, neither way is right. There's probably a middle road yeah. that's a little bit better, and I hate to use words like right and wrong because not, none of that's correct. It's either in the highest or it's not, but I completely agree. It is an essential truth that men and women both process information differently and articulate it differently. So uh, there's a really, really funny bit, uh, and I, the guy's name uh, escapes me right now, but the guy did a TED Talk um, about a woman's brain and a man's brain, and it was 
got so many hits that he asked them as one of the only videos ever done this by the TED organization. They let him delist that video so he could monetize it. But there's some versions of it on YouTube. Mark Gungor is his oh, name. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, I know Mark. He does, uh, he does this really funny bit about a tale of two brains where he talks about uh, bioelectrically and chemically how women's brains are wired and how men's brains are wired. And he's got a hilarious way. If anybody in the audience has ever not ever seen it, I highly recommend you, you do. I mean, it's a great way to laugh about the truth. And then to walk away from that going, oh, so then how am I supposed to relate to my partner if we're processing emotions and thoughts differently? Which is a great question to ask because that's the first question to spur to want to spur you on to maybe there's a different way. Maybe there's maybe there's a more fluid way. Maybe there's a more congruent way to be able to communicate. And it takes different techniques to communicate with different people. And the this idea about harmonized masculine or harmonized manhood is that it's fluid. In some situations, you can be highly masculine, and some uh, some situations you want to be in touch with your feminine because that's what the situation's calling for. Because rarely is a man always masculine and a woman always feminine. Usually, there's a division of labor in the house where you know somebody takes care of the checkbook or versus you know the lawn, and you know in those spaces of taking charge or doing. It's about a masculine energy. So the idea is you can show up differently depending on the situation as long as you're rooted to the truth of who you are. Love it. Love it. And, yeah. and there's something I, you mentioned that was you kind of flew by it and probably most people didn't notice this. But when you said that you brought that blog post home and you showed your wife and she said, we don't care that you're sorry. We care that what you're doing about it. Yeah, we want to know. They, I, her point was... Um, I think most women would want to know what work you're yeah, doing. Yeah, and, and this touches on something that I didn't know existed until recently. So probably most of our listeners are familiar with, with Gary Chapman's work, The Five Love Languages. Yes. There's another piece of that on his site called Your Apology Language. And you can do a little quiz on his website. And literally, it's about what form of apology works for you. That's fascinating. And so the, the, he's, again, he's broke it down to five categories. You need them to make restitution or accept responsibility or express regret mm. or, you know, genuinely repent or request forgiveness. And it's really fascinating because, again, it tells you, well, if you apologize like that, that doesn't feel like an apology to me. Right. But if you do it like this, that means everything to me. <laughs> Same thing with the love languages, right? Because we all know it's not always going to be lovey-dovey. So it's like, oh, well, how do I, how can I apologize for what I've done? I need to know what matters for you. That is so powerful. Yeah, and I don't know why this kind of disappeared into the ethers and it hadn't got more visibility, but um, yeah, it's really enlightening when you do it because I know when I went through it, I was just like, some of the options they gave me, I'm like, that would be like infuriating if you for thought you. you were apologizing by doing that. Right. And it was so crystal clear and it just made me instantly go, wow. So people think they're apologizing and I think they're not. <laughs> and then they're like, well, I apologize. I'm like, no, you didn't. They're like, no, that's how I apologize. Well, it doesn't mean it works for me. Right, right, right. And that's exactly. the whole thing, right? That's partnership is going, well, wait, I need to talk your language, whether it's about so, apologies or love or whatever else it is. And that's what we're dealing with when we're dealing with partnership is it's going, 
it's not about what works for me. It's about what works for you so we can still be in us. Yep. That's That's the whole game. I mean, you you bring up a great point, but I just wanted to say how powerful that was for me even. Um, Yeah, that that whole aspect of the us. Uh, Jennifer uh, and I, my wife, Jennifer Huff, uh, she's in the, been in the transformational work for the last 20 years with her own company. And um, what we realized probably very early on in our relationship is that there was Jennifer, her, along with all her baggage, her triggers and all that kind of stuff. And then there was me uh, with all my ego baggage and triggers. But when we came together, there was a third entity that was created called Jennifer and Adam together. And whenever either of us are triggered or in our ego, we actually take, oh, we're encouraged to take a moment to consciously reconnect to that third entity, which exists not only in this dimension, but in every dimension and is right here. Because in that space of the third entity, there is only love. There is only grace. There is only compassion. Um, there is always, there's only forgiveness. But if I'm going to sit here just with me on my side, it's very easy or it used to be very easy for me to hold her in judgment or hold anybody else in judgment. And um, this thing this thing about the, the apology languages, do you think that the reason that it didn't have much traction or rather that a lot of people didn't talk about it, which is probably more apropos, do you think that a lot of people didn't make a big deal about it because, you know, apologies perceptively could carry a lot of shame? For folks? Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, obviously, it, it people want to go, oh, I want to talk about my love language. <laughs> Not a whole lot of people want to talk about the fact that they're having arguments. Right. Or, or that there's a, or that someone needs a methodology and a, and a process yeah. around cleaning, cleaning up your messes. Yeah, exactly. So I think it just, you know, it didn't have the same same uh, cachet in the in the marketplace. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. And I, I don't remember the details, but they used to call it something different. And they changed the name because obviously whatever they called it was like a dead horse. It went nowhere. <laughs> and so I think they were searching. They're like, wow, why won't this work? And it's like, oh, because people don't want to admit they have problems. Again, I call it the Facebookization of America. Nobody ever a- posts that they had the worst cup of coffee ever. Right. Or that's, my coffee's that's, perfect, and look at the little thing they put on top, and it's like all this stuff. It's like there's no room for you not to be perfect. Yeah, especially on Instagram. Yeah, so it's made it so much harder to own those pieces. Yep. And but I mean, that's, also, that's also the difference between authenticity and inauthenticity. But, I mean, it, that's, again, kind of that – it's really hard to language anything around how someone's going to assist you to become authentic, right? Um, Which is ironic I, that we have to actually be guided in that. Right, because I had some very dear friends of mine, two of them, as a matter of fact, who said who said it a lot simpler than that. But when they used to tell me, Lamb, don't be full of shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because they they saw the inauthentic, authenticity in me before I even recognized it because I was so convinced of my own bullshit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Amazing how, we, how much we can delude ourselves. Totally. Well, Adam, I, I, I want to wrap things up in this way because we're, we're getting to a part of the show I call Bring It All Home. And this mm-hmm. is where we're going to step away from the stories. And I'm just going to ask you a couple quick things that we can leave our listeners with so they can sure. take it home and apply right away. Excellent. So one of these is I want to know, for you personally, what do you feel is the best either partnership or relationship advice you've ever been given? Let love win. Hmm. 
it's very often the thing that uh, Jennifer is absolutely committed to is letting love win. And sometimes that's allowing someone else to have their own process, even if it takes a couple days. Sometimes that's allow honoring someone else's journey, even if it means they might be, you know, going out of state for a couple weeks, couple weeks or a couple months. But letting love in looks differently almost every single time. But it's allowing that to be the focus as opposed to anything else. And I just want to clarify, did you say let love in or let love win? Let love win. That's what I thought. Awesome. Yeah, it's it's not a it's not an ego game then, because yeah. if you're letting love win, then you know it's gotta be something else. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So what would you say if you could pick one, one book mm -hmm. or resource, what would you recommend to our listeners regarding partnership and why? Um, if it's a man, I would say The Way of the Superior Man by David Dieta, um, and, which is uh, probably one of the most profound uh, books that I've ever read, uh, specifically around owning my own manhood. Um, and it's also about being in relationship that really is written by a man for a man uh, in very short, concise, like, <laughs> like, like hold no punches kind of kind of wisdom that it can be easily applied and it was a huge aha in several parts of that book when I was able to apply it um, and for for anyone else uh, including men uh, I would say that John Gray's new version of men are from Mars and women are from Venus is absolutely fascinating especially where they've been able to quantify scientifically that the longer a man or a woman stays in the opposite sex orientation meaning that a woman who stays in the masculine aspect or orientation, um, the longer she's there, the more her hormones become imbalanced. And if she's not allowed or given space to, to own her femininity, that has a deleterious effect on her health and the same way with a man. So again, there's this dance available for most relationships in when, okay, so what does it look like to just be a man and own your stuff and just take care of stuff? Because ultimately, it's for men, it's about being acknowledged, and for women, it's being about heard. And just that point alone should be enough to be able to have anybody look at their partner and go, oh, wow, okay. Yeah, it, both of those tremendous, tremendous resources. Um, I, I, I will admit that the Way of the Superior Man was probably one of the most disturbing books I've ever read. Really? In the way that it, it challenges you. Oh, yes. Right? It's like he doesn't pull yes. any punches. He's just straight up and you're like, whoa. Yeah, there is there is nothing to do except, uh, you know, either let it in or ignore it because there is no in-between for sure. Yeah, no. And and John Gray's book, Beyond Mars and Venus, is is so necessary. Uh, I, I had the privilege of interviewing John back in January. Awesome. And his book had recently come out and we were talking about that. And, you know, he openly admits, he said, you know, we're still Mars and Venus. It's just this whole dynamic of the way our culture works now where women are in the corporate world and they're in a lot of masculine energy and men sometimes are in a very feminine environment. Mm -hmm. We have zero guidance on this. This has never happened before. Correct. So we don't have any idea like, well, what do we do with that? How do we get back to who we are intrinsically? And we, we have no reference point. Right. And that's like the biggest thing is like, OK, so there's this whole thing going on and now we've had someone else, someone uh, incredibly powerful identify it. And then there's, you know, what to do about it, which he has some great examples in the book. And, you know, I, I think or I've said that, uh, you know, that there's probably not a man alive who doesn't want a soft place to land. 
And Jennifer has been that for me. And when I mean a soft place to land, I mean that she has, uh, she has been with me with zero judgment, with zero recrimination, with nothing, no energy around that at all. I'm able to come to her and collapse into her and whether it's been a tough day or it's been an exciting day um, and there's just acceptance. And to me, that soft place of that soft place to land engenders more tenderness and vulnerability and transparency. I mean, it's and a man can also do that for a woman in his masculinity, as we so wonderfully learned a couple of weeks ago um, about about standing in your masculinity so that a woman is able to access more of her femininity and it may not necessarily be an easy transition at, at first because the the dynamic has changed now but for, i think that there's that inherent desire uh, on both men and women to stand fully in in those spaces so that they can be that for each other and and, and i and i just want to make sure that I, that I put the caveat on that in my work this is not specific to a man and a woman it's just about the masculine and the feminine energy period beautiful Beautiful. Well, Adam, clearly you and I could talk for the next three weeks, but that <laughs> is like way that, too long for a podcast. So do me a favor. Would you let our listeners know how they can contact you and learn more about what you do? Sure. They can always go to uh, www.adamm. Yep, that's two M's, adammlam.com. Um, I'm also on Facebook at that same uh, handle and on Twitter and Instagram at adammlam.com. And uh, if anybody wants to check out an initiated man, comma, finally, um, it's on Amazon and, you know, it's been up a week and it's still number one uh, in its category, which I'm very humbled by. Um, it's a great book. It's very funny, um, but it's also very raw and, and truthful in, in this experience that uh, I went through last year um, that had me challenge my own, my own version of masculinity as I was living it to discover something more profound and deep underneath. Awesome. Awesome. And for our listeners, if, if that was all faster than you could grab a pen and paper, don't worry about it because <laughs> you're probably doing something else. Anyhow, that's how podcasts work. Just know that all you have to do is go to the Speaking of Partnership website, put Adam's name in, and you'll go straight to his show page and we'll have links to all those different resources for you. So it'll be really easy for you to, to connect with Adam and his work. It's been my pleasure, my friend, really. Yeah, absolutely a treat. Loved having you here. Thank you for all you shared. And Thank you again for being on the show. My pleasure. It's been an honor. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Speaking of Partnership. Head over to speakingofpartnership.com for links and recaps of every show and so much more. Be sure you catch the bonus stories from our guests on Follow Your Yes Friday. It's easy to do. Just go to your favorite podcast directory, search for Speaking of Partnership, and click subscribe. Like what you hear? Leave us a rating and review on Stitcher or iTunes. The greatest compliment you can give the show is to refer us to someone else either in person or on the web. Have a great day. And remember, even when you stumble, you're still moving forward. Peace.